Hello guys and welcome to episode 2 of Nitrogen Podcast with me, Mark Ashworth and your co-host, Das Ashton Kid, Brian Bradshaw. How's it going, Brian? Uh, not bad, you? I'm not too bad, I hope that I pronounced that correctly. Yeah, it sounded right. Well, I know certainly whose German is good and that's the German listeners that are listening to the podcast and we absolutely appreciate the fact that this has made its way to Germany. Multiple listeners in Germany, in fact. I was very surprised by the statistics when I saw them the other day. How do you feel about that, Brian? It's Chile, it's Australia, it's South America, it's Germany, it's it's all over the place. I know, I've said it several times on social media, it's absolutely fucking nuts. I can't describe it any other way. Uh, for our first episode, I never expected to get those levels. Never expected it at all. Me neither. I mean, I don't, I don't think we set targets of what reach we wanted to have or anything like that. We were just doing it to enjoy it. But yeah, the, the feedback's been phenomenal. Not a bad word's been said about what we're doing here. And, and we really appreciate you guys listening. We really appreciate all the feedback that you give us. You can always find us on social media at NitrogenCast. On Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Reddit. Today's episode is going to be covering Nitro number three, which is on September 18th, and Nitro number four. Before that, in between last podcast and this podcast, is uh, a little pay-per-view known as WCW Fall Brawl War Games 1995. I'm going to run through the results very quickly, and I'll give you a little bit of an opinion on it as well. Johnny B. Bad defeated Brian Pillman in a WCW United States Heavyweight title number one contenders match, and that was nearly 30 minutes of a match. It was good at the beginning, but went on too long. After that, Sergeant Craig Pittman defeated Cobra, which was just a throwaway match. Uh, Diamond Dallas Page with the Diamond Doll and Max Muscle defeated the Renegade, who was accompanied to the ring with Jimmy Hart, who was also the champion. Uh, So DDP is now currently the WCW World TV champion. Harlem Heat, Booker T and Stevie Ray with Sister Sherry defeated Bunkhouse Buck and Dick Slater, who came to the ring with Colonel Robert Parker to win the WCW Tag Team titles. This happened whilst Colonel Robert Parker and Sensational Sherry, sorry, Sister Sherry, were smooching in the other ring. So the finish was basically that Colonel Robert Parker was supposed to be watching what was happening in the ring and he wasn't. So the advantage was given to Harlem Heat, who are the heels in this situation, to win to, to, to basically win the WCW Tag Team titles. And it wasn't a bad match, to be fair. It went on for about 17 minutes. Uh, it wasn't bad at all. The main event, without War Games classed as the main event, um, Ric Flair versus Orrin Anderson, which has been built up on Nitro over the past couple of weeks. And it was in Asheville, North Carolina. So imagining what North Carolina is to the Horsemen and to Ric Flair and to Warren Anderson, this is one hell of a main event, really. It goes on for 22 minutes, and I honestly loved it. I think I sent you a message last week to say you've got to watch this. You haven't had time, but if you get chance, it's really worth a watch if you just like watching a heavyweight bout. Ric Flair actually doesn't move off the top rope, which... I marked out for it because I, I I can't remember the last time I've ever seen one. But Arn Anderson went over in that one uh, after interference from Brian Pillman, who kicked Ric Flair in the back of the head. Really, really good. Uh, loads of wrestlers came down to ringside, sat in the crowd to watch the match, uh, including the likes of Buff Bagwell and Robert Parker was there as well, Bubba Rogers, Eddie Guerrero and Alex Wright sat next to each other discussing the match as well. And then in the War Games match, 
uh, Hulk Hogan, Lex Luger, Randy Savage and Sting, the Hulkamaniacs, defeated the Dungeon of Doom. Hogan gets a moment in the ring with the Taskmaster. Now, at the end of this, the Giant comes down whilst Hogan is giving the Taskmaster right hands because that's all that Hogan can give. And the Giant absolutely obliterates Hulk Hogan. In fact, he, he gets his head in between Giant's hands and he just twists his head off like a Coca-Cola top. And what will be played on from here is that Hulk Hogan's seriously injured as they went off the air and the Giant's just maniacal and just destroyed like the icon of the business. I do have a question about that. Is that the Giant's first appearance? Is that the Giant's first appearance? Yes. I don't, I don't believe he's wrestled for WCW at this point. Right. Because I do know the uh, results of his very first match. So, yeah. And I'm just interested to see that. Yeah. So, I love Tony Schiavone. When, when Giant comes down for the end of this match, Tony Schiavone absolutely puts over the Giant just by saying, look at the size of him. And in his voice, it's just so believable. I, I really, really dug uh, Schiavone on uh, commentary. As he he's only doing the pay per views at the moment, as obviously on Nitro we've got Bischoff and the Brain and Mongo McMichael. So as on pay per views you've got Shivani and Bobby the Brain Heenan. But I, I do like Shivani when it comes to commentary. Uh, I have nothing bad to say about him. Well, from me, from my perspective, I haven't really heard much from him. Um, obviously these days he's been doing commentary on and off for all elite wrestling, and mm-hmm. what I've heard from him on that. He has this, for lack of a better word, sheen that nobody else has in the business. For me, anyway, he, he adds this element. He's just got a very smooth tone. He doesn't go way overboard like likes of JR do, does or uh, Mauro Ronaldo does. You know, he just keeps it quite level-headed and he only goes overboard when it actually matters. But apart from that, he just has this smooth voice and he brings a really good insight, a very old school insight into the business. And I absolutely love it. Uh, so I am interested to actually hear him on Nitro. It's a shame that we're not getting to hear him at the moment. But obviously, we are going to eventually. Yeah, not just yet. I'm not sure when it actually happens. Or maybe when maybe when they go to uh, two hours. But I agree. I absolutely agree. I mean, he, people say... That, that JR is the voice of wrestling and, and that Tony Schiavone is the voice of our childhood and Tony Schiavone kind of was the voice of my childhood a little bit and I always thought he was silky smooth I think the background that he came from as well helps with that because he did a lot of baseball commentary and that sort of stuff, he did a little bit of radio work and it just seems to fit it really well. He also seems to be a very relatable guy as well I mean, you can't really relate to anybody else in wrestling. Obviously, you have the, the big names that you can somewhat relate relate to, but even so, they don't come across as personable. Whereas Tony Schiavone, you hear his backstory, you hear his story post-WCW, where his job was working in a Starbucks, and yeah. he said that's one of the best jobs he's ever had. He just enjoyed doing that. He enjoyed listening to all the girls gossip and all that while he's just serving people coffee. And it, I don't know, I don't... There are other people that have that relatability, but for him, he just sounds like a normal guy. Yeah, he kind of fit the WCW mould for me. This is part of the reason why I love WCW so much is because more of it was 
relatable. It was more real, if you like. It wasn't where, where the WWF had colourful, flamboyant characters that were superstars. WCW had normal people that were just muscly. And I think calling them by the real names and all that sort of stuff, as Bischoff's alluded to in the past, adds to that. Shivani's no different. Shivani kind of fits into that mould. And yeah, I think that's the reason why I, I picked that, if you like. If you picked a side, that's the reason why I picked that side. We'll go to Nitro episode 3, which is on September 18th from Johnson City in Tennessee. The, the four brawl, actually, coming from Asheville, North Carolina, and then going to Johnson City in Tennessee, and then next week, they're going to be in South Carolina. That didn't make any sense to me. I kind of thought, well, you'd have your pay-per-view in North Carolina, then you'd go down to South Carolina, do a Nitro there, and then maybe go to Tennessee, but I guess that's how the books fell. Dark matches. State Patrol, who were Lieutenant James Earl and Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker, who is the head trainer at the power plant in WCW. Uh, they defeated Colonel Robert Parker and Dick Slater. So Robert Parker actually wrestles, even though he's like 90, and concentrating on Sensational Sherry at this moment in time as well. Uh, another dark match of Randy Savage defeating the Zodiac. That did not last long. Arn Anderson defeated Dave Sullivan, who is uh, Kevin Sullivan's brother. And Eddie Guerrero defeated Dean Malenko in a dark match, uh, which went for, oh. for 10 minutes, 30 seconds, which is an absolute travesty that was not included on Nitro. I was just about to say, how can you not put that on your main show? Yeah. Why is that a dark match? And I suppose they're probably not really well known outside of BCW at this point, are they? But, you know, if you really want to introduce a new style onto TV, you've got the two perfect people there. I think you're right. And I think that dark match probably propelled them in a lot of people's eyes. And that's probably the reason why we're going to see them very quickly on uh, future Nitros. I cannot wait, seriously. Eddie Guerrero, uh, what can you say about the guy? That hasn't been said. He is one of my personal favourites. And Dean Malenko, okay, in WWE, he never really had the best run. Um, he was coming towards the end of his career at that point. But, you know, I've heard so much about him and I've seen glimpses of his, of his um, abilities. And oh, I'm just looking forward to actually see him in his prime. You'll certainly appreciate what he could do, especially in, in WCW, particularly with cruiserweights and everything like that. And obviously Eddie, well, Eddie's just Eddie. He's not as heavyweight in WCW. He's much more cruiserweight, much more high-flying, much more agile. He's got more ability in my eyes, whereas obviously when he was in the WWE and the WWF, he got a lot bigger, which restricted his movement. So there's a lot of good stuff to come with them too. And it goes to show what a master he was of the ring because like you saying that in WCW was more of a high flyer, he was more lightweight in his in his uh, body weight. Um, but yeah. in obviously in WWE he put on a little bit more muscle. But in WWE he was just so good. He was so good at everything that he did. So yeah. I am very interested to see him in doing his cruiserweight stuff he looked the part as well in the WWF I thought in WCW he kind of looked quite generic but in the WWF he was very unique to start off natural we have the Taskmaster and the Giant coming out of an ambulance and alluding to the Giant's father who were obviously 
alluding to Andre the Giant, which is a complete load of tosh. We all know that. Uh, how how did you feel about the giant being Andre the Giant's son, or if that if that is indeed the the direction that they're going? Yeah, I've heard this before, and yeah, I really don't like it. I think I actually saw um, a video a few weeks ago. It were it's one of these things that WWE are currently doing, where if it's on the internet, it must be true. And somebody asked about it, and I think he debunked it. I think he said that that was never the plan. But oh, I've always heard, I've always heard it being alluded to. Well, I'd wonder who his father was meant to be then. I mean, he's got the, you know, the singlet and everything like that on. It's exactly, it's almost exactly the same. So... Yeah, it, it's clear. It's clear. Now, maybe they never actually told him that. Uh, maybe he's just trying to cover tracks for the sake of, like, some just looking out for Andre's legacy. Maybe, and his own legacy, I suppose. But who knows? Mm. I always saw it as kind of a cheap way to try and get him over. Oh, oh this absolutely. is Andre's son, so, you know, just just believe us. But it, it just it, it didn't sit right with me, and I, I didn't like it. The good thing about the Giant is just being able to, to watch what he's doing again, going back to what Shivani said about look at the size of him as soon as he got into the cage. I mean, his, his head was nearly touching the top of the cage, and that did wonders for him to sort of to make him look like an absolute beast of a man. Yeah, because there's nobody else in wrestling at this moment in time that actually looks like him. Obviously, he had Giant Gonzalez, but that's a guy that is just really tall. There was nothing else to him. Yeah. Uh, sorry, uh, friend of the podcast, at Friends Wrestle, who is a big Giant Gonzalez fan. Um, that guy was... He, he was just a basketball player. He was very tall. There was no real muscle to him. They had him in a muscle outfit, for fuck's sake. <laughs> you know, he didn't look the least bit intimidating. Well, the giant is, as we can kind of agree on. Um, in his interviews, he, he he puts on like a gruff rather than using his normal voice. Did, 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 did you think that that added to the character himself? Or do you think that he should have just used his... Now that we know, obviously in hindsight, we know what his voice actually sounds like. Do you think he could have just used his normal voice? To be fair, he, his voice is fairly deep, but he doesn't really sound intimidating with it. Whenever mm. he's been a heel in WWE, he's always put on that same gruff voice. Um, so, to be honest with you, I'm pretty used to it. So it didn't really bother me either way. It's basically alluding to the fact that Hogan did leave in an ambulance and we're not entirely sure if he will be at Nitro tonight. We cut away and we go to the American males who are about to square off with the Blue Bloods. Now, for those of you who don't know the Blue Bloods, it's Stephen Regal, also known as William Regal. It's Bobby Eaton and Squire David Taylor. Regal and Taylor came back to WWE, I'm going to say about 2007, I think, as the Blue Bloods. Yeah, it were around then, yeah. Yeah, I, d- I didn't see much of it, but I heard that they'd returned and I was kind of like, oh, Dave Taylor, I haven't seen Dave Taylor for ages. Dave Taylor will spend a lot of time on WCW Saturday night, on WCW Worldwide, which we talked about the last time on Channel 5. Buff Bagwell and Scotty Riggs, the gimmick obviously is the Chippendales, which is... And they're American and they're males. Yeah, yeah, it's very, it's... very basic. 
I didn't mind them. I didn't mind them. The, the theme, it kind of sounded like Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting. I'd never picked up on that, but now that you mention it, it does a little bit, yeah. I think they're going to be they're gonna be wrestling a little bit more on that show, so you might be able to catch it the next time, definitely. The Blue Bloods are going to be attacked, and Booker T and Stevie Ray with Sherry are going to interrupt the entire thing because they are the tag champs. They basically come out and they just give a title shot straight away which the commentary team are trying to put over has not been sanctioned and we're not sure if it's actually going to go all above board, but we get into it anyway. The uh, the Chippendales, they just accept and they say, let's go for it. It's a really weird logic that, like, you know, I can understand the rhetoric, like, what, from, from, from a modern standpoint, like, Brock Lesnar as the WWE champion would, come out, Paul Heyman will speak on his behalf and just saying like, he needs a challenger no one here has challenged him, you know he needs a new challenger, that kind of thing I like that, but just coming out and just saying, right yeah here's a title shot Like as a heel you don't really want to be doing that it just doesn't make any sense at all No, because heels are supposed to want to shy away from the challenge, aren't they? Oh we're going to be the champions for the longest and they've just sort of come out and said, here we're going to give you a title shot just for the sake of it not a bad match though, I quite enjoyed it. Uh, Booker T, obviously again, we can go forward into, into WWE and TNA te- territory and, and he did the job, but again, when you go back to Booker T in 1995, I think he's bigger, I think he's badder, I think he's stronger, I think he's more agile. There's a part in this where he just he just pulls Buff from a cross body and I think that just shows the brute strength of him to just pull him up and just slam him down because the momentum of where Buff's weight is actually shifting makes it look like he'd probably drop him. Yeah. But Booker T just, just effortlessly just picks him up and just whacks him down. I was so impressed with him. The big axe kicks, uh, it's it's the usual stuff from Booker T, but just with a little bit more spring and a little bit more oomph to it because he's just that much younger. There is an axe kick in this match which has more snap in it. That's the best way I can describe it. It it looks absolutely brutal. It's like I obviously can only go by what I've seen from him in WWE in TNA, and the axe kick there it doesn't really look as brutal. It doesn't look as brutal. Uh, obviously, different styles, different companies, and age being a factor as well, maybe. But yeah, here. It just looks like he, whoever whoever is going to give an axe kick to, it looks like he's just going to hack their head off. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and it definitely warrants being sold like a trooper, really, because I, I just, he, he just makes everything look so brutal. Stevie Ray. I only know him as Booker T's brother. I've not seen him wrestle before. He looks the part. He does look the part, but... You know, I can't really say there was much in this match that there was just nothing that stood out for me from him personally. I think from from Harlem Heat side, Booker T did most of the most of the work. Get used to that, Brian. <laughs> yeah. The Stevie Ray being in the ring, obviously, I've seen multiple matches with Stevie Ray, and it is just Booker T. You know, I think it's really hard for Stevie Ray to actually do anything in the ring that's going to live up to what Booker T was doing. And I think when you look looking back at '95, Booker T, you, you know that there's something special there. It's such a shame that it would take you know another five years for somebody to say, "All right, then that's you know that's world championship caliber." 
And I think at one point, you know, sooner or later, I think WCW were like, we just don't know what to do with him. You know, before they shoved the belt on him and everything like that. Uh, the males win. But Chippendales actually win this. Uh, whether it's sanctioned or not, the, the, the American males are now the tag team champions because the colonel, Robert Parker, has come out and has uh, essentially taken Sherry backstage, alluding back to the thing at Fall Brawl where those two seem to be having a little bit of a thing going on. Well, that explains my confusement because from, from what I saw is that Colonel Parker comes out and Sherry just drops into his arms and he just whisks her away like a damsel in distress. Like, I, I didn't get what was going on. Yeah, WCW failed here to, you know, give a highlight package of what was actually going on in terms of the storyline. And people are just going to be confused. I mean, you know, the last the last time we see Colonel Robert Parker, he's just with he just comes out with a tag team, and this week women are just falling into his arms. And if you're at home, you're just going to be like, that that doesn't make any sense. Sherry would be helping in her boys out, but now she's just being taken to the backstage, all happy and gleeful because this old geezer's just there. But yeah, there's new cha- there's new tag team champions. If this does indeed stay sanctioned, as the commentators allude to, yeah, I am certain the decision's going to be overturned. But I've mm. got to say, um, I've seen Buff Bagwell before, and I've never really been impressed by him. But f- again, I've only seen him in his later WCW career, the odd match in that. Um, obviously, the terrible, terrible match that he had on Raw. With Booker T, yeah. of all people, I've never, never really been a fan of him. I've never liked the look. Um, he just seems to be all muscle, all glamour muscles, nothing really else. But here, he's a lot more agile. He's a little bit more torn down, and I was just really impressed with him. Really, really impressed. He seems hungrier. Yeah, I think as time went on and he got contract renewal after contract renewal got more money and more money i think he got lazier as well getting his mum involved well yeah <laughs> infamous of course that'll come down down the line as well folks so you might want to stick wheels for that uh, interesting time in wcw history oh judy bagwell on a pole oh fucking on, a, on, on, on a forklift oh on a forklift were it it was a forklift oh for fuck's sake that <laughs> I don't know if that's better or worse, to be honest with you. I know. Uh, New Blood Rising 2000, I think that was. You hear WCW 2000 and on a pole. Yeah, pretty much. More or less. On a weekly or a bi-weekly basis. And if it isn't on a pole, it's on a chain dangling and you've got to get a ladder to go and get it. It's just not wrestling. But a lot of it could be construed as better than current product. Which is bizarre to think about, especially considering how much of it I've seen. I watch some of the products that I see now and I kind of think to myself, you know, I'd take WCW 2000 over this. Yeah, there is a lack of diversity in terms of content, really. A lot of it is pretty much the same. And I think, because we're coming off the back of WrestleMania and we had the... Undertaker AJ Styles Boneyard match mm. and the John Cena Bray Wyatt Funhouse match and those matches were very well revered 
because they were very colourful, they were a lot different than what we usually see, I think that has a lot to do with it. I think if we had a little bit more, um, a little more creative content, I don't think they would have been as well received as they have been. I think I agree with that. I think if it wasn't in the current climate, it wouldn't be as accepted by fans. And that's not me shitting on them at all, because they were really enjoyable. Yeah, They were really enjoyable, but there is that part in the back of my mind thinking that if this had happened in 99-2000, I probably wouldn't have enjoyed it near as much. I probably would have thought, okay, it's a little bit hawky. You know, it was fun, but it's a little bit hawky. Well, I've got good news for you because the Boneyard match happened in WCW in 2000. It didn't go on for 35 minutes. It went on for about four, but it happened. <laughs> uh, and Tony Schiavone said it was the first one ever, but I don't know if that's true or not. Well, we'll see. I wanted to talk to you about the Nitro ring. I actually missed this off on the last podcast, the ring curtain at the side. If you'd have noticed on the first two Nitros... It was transparent. Transparent, yeah. I was meant to bring it up and I forgot to bring it up completely and I wondered what your opinion was. Um, I actually quite liked it. It was a little bit different because obviously what what we've seen from pretty much every wrestling promotion ever is that they have a ring apron with the logo on. Uh, That's pretty much it. Whereas this, uh, from last week... The natural logo was transparent. You could see lights from underneath the ring. It did make it look a little bit futuristic. Mm. I think it complemented the actual entranceway in that aspect. But I obviously know the natural ring from the big uh, red blocks with the natural logo in. And I do like that look. So Yeah, I, I, the, the transparent thing I'd never really picked up on before until we were doing this. Uh, and I did like it. I just can't see how it would have worked in the long run when you've got you've got to put things under the ring for wrestlers to use. I suppose it had no real purpose. It was just their way of trying something a little bit different. Still looked better than the Banana Man ring. The Banana Man ring. <laughs> that's that's what I call the old one that they had in the debut of Nitro. It was just blue and yellow, so I just nicknamed it the Banana Man ring. Alright, that makes sense, yeah. There's a Macho Man Slim Jim advert. This is the first one on Nitro. This is the first one we've seen. And, God, I love these. Yeah. The, these were some of my favourite parts of Nitro. They're absolutely brilliant. Don't worry, guys. I am not trying a Macho Man impression again this week. What? You promised. You said you, you've, give, you've been given two weeks to practice, and you promised. Yeah. Well, unfortunately... You know, my, my real-life job, I work in a bakery. The last thing you want to be doing whilst you're working in a bakery... So, so my concentrations are being on other things. I can't just to be standing there in the bakery just going, ooh, the bread rises to the top. I, I just don't have the time or energy to make an ass of myself in front of my supervisor. You could snap into a breadstick. We're... <laughs> We're counting that as your impression. You need more practice. Another two weeks. Rick Flair is next. A Flair promo. He's in his ring gear. He's in his robe. He's cut his hair. He's looking fresh and fine and dapper. Uh, and he wants to face Flying Brian Pillman, simply because Flying Brian, again, you got to add context to the story, Flying Brian cost him his match against Orrin Anderson in North Carolina at Fall Bro War Games. The moment that match was teased, I'm like, I can only get so hard, guys. That is 
it's a new dream match for me. Rick Flair versus Brian Pillman. Or I could go for that. Yeah, it, it could be the making of Brian Pillman as well, with it being Rick Flair. Um, going back to the first episode of Nitro when we were talking about Brian Pillman, we kind of felt like his first match with Justin Thunder Liger was a bit sloppy in places. He seems to be finding his feet quite well now. The match with Johnny B. Bad at Fall Brawl, again, it, it, it was good and it was clean. There was nothing really sloppy about it. So he seems to be finding his feet quite nicely on TV now. Uh, to be put up against somebody like Ric Flair could be the making of him. Absolutely. He talks about Orange breaking the code, uh, Ric Flair does. Uh, the family code and bringing an outsider into family problems and that all bets are off. And then Regal versus Sting on Saturday night. I should watch that. I've never seen it. That's what my, note, that's what my notes say. <laughs> Again, another dream match. <laughs> yeah. Especially with Sting at that time. Yeah, early days Sting against... Stephen Regal as he was back then. William Regal is one of my favourites of all time. So, again, yeah. looking forward to seeing him as the Lord Stephen Regal. I always felt he was underutilised, but obviously, I feel like that was just WCW when it came to British people. I, I never, th- I never felt like they they wanted to push a British person. Wow. Uh... I, I mean, well, it's twenty twenty now, and we've got the very first British, Scottish, whatever way you want to call it. Um, WWE champion so there is credence to that thought yeah I mean the only time I started to think that American audiences were starting to you know acclimatise themselves to a British champion was when Nick, Nick Aldis became T- uh, he was TNA champion at one point and then the NWA champion after that and I thought that that would have opened the doors and it just didn't and I'd, I've never really understood why, because you've got to look at the... If you look at the the influx of British talent, like British Bulldog, I was British Bulldog, never a world champion. At least for, you know, a couple of weeks. It is such a shame. Such a shame that he was never a world champion. And William Regal, I suppose he's probably... He leans more on the humble side. Like, yeah. he probably would have turned down that opportunity. Because um, I do have friends. Uh, shout out to the New Age Insiders. They revealed on one of their podcasts that they had a seminar with William Regal. They had breakfast with him and they asked him about the Hall of Fame. And he said that he doesn't think he's a Hall of Famer because nobody paid to see him. And no disrespect to his opinion and all that, but I totally disagree with that. Because me me personally, in the late 90s, when he surfaced in WWE... I absolutely loved him and I just wanted nothing more than to see his ass be kicked. <laughs> yeah, one of the greatest heels. Yeah, so I was paying to see him get his ass kicked and then obviously he just became so good at being a heel that I just loved him after that. But I think he is on the same level as British Bulldog in that he deserved a world title shot. He might have rejected it, but he definitely deserved it. So back to Nitro. Uh, the next matchup is going to be Paul Orndorff uh, versus Johnny B. Bad. Uh, Paul Orndorff, again to add context, has had a little bit of a revelation at Fall Brawl. This very weird, clairvoyant character came into his dressing room while Paul Orndorff was having an emotional breakdown, saying that he didn't know who he was anymore. So this clairvoyant character comes in and says, I know exactly who you are, Paul, and gives him a mirror. From that point onwards, Paul Orndorff becomes Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. 
Sorry, you said that WCW want to get rid of all the colourful characters and this is what they do. They have a guy have a revelation. Somebody somebody from the other side telling him that this is who you are and giving him a mirror. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> if you it, saw yeah, that. If you saw the actual look of this clairvoyant guy as well, he just had like Mel B. Her that was sprayed grey. Had like a bright grey slash dark white suit on but Paul Oindorf kind of has this revelation that he, he is he is Mr. Wonderful and, and now he's become almost a cross between Ric Flair and the narcissist Lex Luger he kind of looking at himself all the time admiring himself all the time and obviously sooner or later it's gonna it's gonna trip him up I have to say you know this whole entrance that he had with the operetta singing Mr. Wonderful and him just looking in the mirror. He's wearing this absolute gorgeous sequin jacket. And obviously you look at the guy. He's an, he, he's an absolute hoss here. He, he's, he looks in shape for his age. In great shape. It's so bad it's it's good. <laughs> it is so bad it's good. I mean even when Johnny B. Bad comes out. He's doing his usual thing. And Paul Orndorff is just ignoring him. And looking in his mirror. And... I don't know why, but I just laughed at that. He's going up against Johnny B. Bad here, and Johnny B. Bad's coming out very flamboyantly with a huge, when you're hot, you're hot attire, which kind of looks like Macho Man's a little bit. It's very, it's got, it's very Macho esque. Well, it's funny you should have said that because I wrote down in my notes is that he's dressed in what is like a hilariously bad Randy Savage Halloween costume. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you think it's bad, and I think it's all right. So, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna differ on opinions there. He's coming out, and he's he's got a big t-shirt shooter or whatever they are, and he's firing bad books into the crowd as they're going for the break. And there was a I, I noted down a little bit of a production thing. The main hard camera is kind of dulled down, whereas the side cameras are a little bit more saturated as they're going to a break. I don't know if that was on purpose or by accident or whatever, but I know that when people have been talking to Eric Bischoff about Nitro, he said that he wanted it to look a little bit more dingier and grimmier and not overly produced. Well, there is a moment in this match where they come back from, from a break and they, they just cut to this documentary-style camera angle. And it's when Johnny Johnny B. Baddies actually just punching Orndorff. And it did look pretty cool for what it was. It was so different, you know. So I kind of see what they're going for. Um, I'm not really sure it adds anything to a wrestling match itself, but the fact that it was just something a little bit different—that something wasn't wrestling at the same time. Like it, it, it like from my from my perspective, like watching something like Beyond the Map, where you just get that odd camera angle, just to. Yeah, I can't really describe it any other way. Kind of give it a realistic feel. Yeah. Yeah, not overly produced and not just like we're making a TV programme. Something could happen, anything could happen at any given time. So if the camera is slightly tilted or, you know, there's a little bit of shock in the camera, then it kind of gives it that realism and that, that live feel as well. And, I mean, they're actually doing that now. I mean, when Brock Lesnar delivered the F5 to... Um, 
to Drew McIntyre at WrestleMania, one of the F5s, the camera actually just shook as he did it. And it just gave it a little bit more intense feel about it, like this is an earth-shattering manoeuvre. I mean, they also did that when they had um, Free 16 Day and Stone Cold Steve Austin gave Byron Saxton the stunner. The camera just zoomed in a little bit and shook, and it made that move look a little bit better. I, I know some people will think that's a little bit hawky, a little bit shit, but I kind of like that. Yeah, I think if you re- reserved it for the for the really big moments, then it would be really good. I, I, I'm not sure... I'm not sure where all that came from. I do remember TNA using it quite a lot. They used to use like a lot of zoomed in and zoomed out shots, and it's kind of impactful, no pun intended, when it comes to the camera work and somebody's hitting somebody and you, you, you can quickly zoom in and zoom out and you can shake your camera or whatever. It does make it look a little bit better, but I think it's used persistently now. Yeah, unfortunately, we get a lot of crash zooming on WWE TV, and it can be nauseatingly bad like it makes you just go a little it makes me go a little bit dizzy crash zooming's a really really good way to to describe it though i I wouldn't have thought you'd have called it that but yeah that's that's actually bang on the money to be fair that's not my term that's what i hear people that are in that kind of profession call it so yeah well this match could have done with some crash zooming because it basically was just a car crash I didn't note down any sections of this match that actually stood out to me apart from the spot where Orndorff's on the outside just looking at himself in the mirror and obviously I think he's supposed to be using the mirror to see the reflection of Johnny B. Bad about to jump through the ropes at him and it all just comes crashing down. Yes, Paul Orndorff is very clunky whereas Johnny B. Bad is running around him, he's running rings around him in certain matches that works, but there is a lot of mistiming as a result. And I think it's probably Orndorff's age, him coming from a different era as well. I think he's better served wrestling performers on the Lex Luger, Hulk Hogan level. I mean, those aren't going to be five-star matches by any means, but at least to be better suited for that. Yeah, he's kind of like that old-school heavyweight kind of get somebody in a submission for four and a half minutes kind of guy. Whereas Johnny B. Bad still looks like he's trying to find his feet a little bit, but he keeps being mismatched against opponents. This match just doesn't doesn't do anything for me whatsoever. And the finish is even worse. Bad wasn't even pinned. The referee wasn't in the correct position. And it all just falls apart. The commentators talk right past it. His, his shoulders weren't even on the mat. And surprise, surprise, the referee's Nick Patrick. Yeah, I was going to say, it was Nick Patrick, and there's one thing about Patrick that I really do not like. I don't know if I brought this up on the last uh, episode, but when he does his counts, he's not pounding the mat, he's just tapping the mat. He looks like he's just lying down to take a nap and (laughs) just tapping the mat, and it takes me out of it. You know, I'm so used to the one, two, three, and you don't get that from him. It, there's a complete disconnect between the, the free count and the fans. So until the bells rang, you don't know that the match is over. You going into detail there is just triggered in my head when I was watching this yesterday that I had a, a serious like rabbit hole moment in my own head. So I, I've done a little bit of referee training in wrestling and I have to give hats off to every referee that's ever been in a wrestling ring because 
it's the hardest job in the ring. It's the hardest job because it, you are the middleman for everything. In this day and age, especially when every spot is called and the com- the communication between the wrestlers has to be on point with HDTV, those wrestlers can't really talk to each other anymore. So the referee's left to do a lot more. Nick Patrick, as you've just said there, just looks so lazy and just looks like he doesn't want to be there and it makes the product look inferior. Yeah, there was all, there, there is an actual spot in this match where uh, Nick, uh, Nick Patrick breaks the action in the corner and Orndorff gets in his face and they're actually touching nose to nose. But I like that kind of thing. That is what I like in a referee where they're not afraid to put themselves up against the wrestler and say, I'm, I'm not taking this shit. And that was good. I like that. But everything else, he just bring, he brings nothing. He brings absolutely nothing. If you can't tell, guys, I have never liked Nick Patrick. Even in WWE, he was the exact same. Yeah, he's not he's not been high on my list of referees either. But he always seemed to be considered in WCW one of the top officials. I have no idea why. He must just kiss a lot of ass. Who knows? It's probably that. You know, I've heard a lot of shady things about Nick Patrick. Um, he does seem to be a bit of a... Uh, a brown noser, for a lack of a better word. Continuing on with Nitro, the next part is a vignette with the cast of Baywatch, of all things. The Macho Man is doing some weights with the cast of Baywatch, uh, and the Taskmaster comes in and attacks Macho Man. Flair comes in for the save, along with uh, another guy, I, I'm not sure who it was. Uh, this 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 was quite interesting, because Baywatch was like, in 1995, Baywatch was the top of TV. So for WCW to actually get them, I know they weren't the top actors themselves, but to have them at the side and to have Macho involved and to have all of that sort of, sort of rolling into one. It's great marketing. Mm, absolutely. Um, I'm gutted Pamela Anderson weren't there because I used to fancy her, but there you go. <laughs> Flair, the, the interesting thing I found about this, though, was that, that, that apparently when going to do weights or going to sunbathe at the beach, Ric Flair will wear his knee pads and his trunks. I didn't notice that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he's just gone down to the beach you know he's probably you know down in florida or wherever it is and he's just ah i think i'll just relax next to the beach with my knee pads on lord i love him yeah it's just bizarre and I, c- I can imagine rick flair actually doing that as well he's just ready and rowing to go whenever you hear all these big stories about him being in the bars with the guys after you know, all I can imagine is there in his million dollar suit and he's got his knee pads underneath, just ready just in case a barber all breaks out. I absolutely hope that that happens. I mean, I hope he just knew, he, he just keeps them knee pads on just for when he's going to have sex with some girl. Like, because you never know what he's going to get up to. He might be spending half an hour down on the floor and he'll just be like, Woo! Yeah. <laughs> um, the Macho Man's the next one out for an interview live on Nitro after all that. He's wound up and he's continuing the programme, leading into a feud with Lex Luger. Macho can be a little bit off-topic when it comes to the in-ring promos or out-ring promos, as we discussed on the last one. He's got his cliches and he's got a lot of machoisms, if we can call them that. I like that. And he seems to... He gets, he gets, he gets a little bit ahead of himself. 
I can't imagine what the macho man brain was like when he was thinking about these sorts of things. Because obviously he's not scripted at all. It's just like, macho, you're cutting a promo on Lex Luger. He's done this, this and this to you, even though he hasn't done this, this and this. You're just going to think that he has. It always, it always comes out gold. Always comes out gold. He can talk about anything that he wants in a, in a promo and I'm just going to love it. Yeah, absolutely one of the best of all time. But going back to what you're saying, that where he does get ahead of himself, I think it's because in WCW, he has to be reactionary. You know, these he has to be reactionary to actions that have happened before. Whereas in WWE, um, all these promos, they were taped ahead of time. So he, he, he really had more time to digest things and think about it, about what he's going to say. So he probably, he probably were really well prepared. I mean... He, we all know that he scripted every little aspect of a match. So I wouldn't be surprised if he scripted every single little aspect of his promo, at least verbally anyway, the actions he'll just do on the spot. And maybe of the, the mass amounts of cocaine that he used to do probably helped with all that. <laughs> yeah, that might have helped him out a little bit. The fact that it's live, though, and he's got to go out there and he's got to cut this live, and he just doesn't fall over his own words. It's the one thing that I admire about these. And the unfortunate thing is that if they're going to put him in a program with Lex Luger, who is the complete opposite of the macho man on the microphone, it's only going to highlight Lex's inability to cut a decent promo. I don't think that he did that bad when it came to this promo in itself, but he does trip himself up a couple of times. You can't really expect anything more from Lex Luger. It's Lex Luger. Yeah, very true. But yeah, being in the programme with Macho, it just kind of highlights his his inability. I wouldn't have minded him coming down with a mouthpiece uh, to have a, like a manager or something like that, like Paul Heyman is with Brock Lesnar now. If Lex would have just been like the silent but violent type with some sort of mouthpiece to do the talking for him, that probably would have worked a lot better. Yeah, absolutely. But like you said, this this promo isn't really all that bad. Um, the psychology in the promo is pretty sound. I mean, Luger, Luger says that a, a large part of Macho Man's frustrations is that he's jealous of him and says that he's been given this opportunity for the world title that Macho Man hasn't given. And Macho Man says that it, it's a very good point. I do want to be the WCW champion as well. I kind of like that aspect to it. It gives the feud a little bit more legitimacy rather than oh you might be with the dungeon of doom for whatever fucking reason you even for luger he doesn't fit in with that crowd yeah and to, to add context to that as well at full brawl lex did accidentally hit macho whilst they were fighting in the cage lex kind of goes for one guy and the guy ducks so he ends up hitting macho so that feeds into this whole feud that's going on and Macho's paranoia about whether or not Lex is supposed to be on his side. And and he slaps him. He slaps him. I don't even think he was meant to slap him, but he slapped him. After that, we've got another video package, which is the giant destroying Hulk Hogan's Harley Davidson, which was given to him by the people of Florida or, or some stupid whatever. Uh, this, this was really... These sorts of things seem really overproduced to me I actually said that I enjoyed just seeing Hulk Hogan slap the monster truck as the giant is just down there looking down and laughing at him it's like something out of a kids cartoon 
but in terms of being, you know, this is WCW, this is, we're going to be more realistic than what the WWF are at the time. Uh, yeah, it's, it, it adds nothing and it takes away a lot. Yeah. It's just, like you said, the slapping of the, slapping of the um, monster truck, just it's just hilarious and I cringe I, I just cringe for Hogan and I hate Hulk Hogan but I cringe for him because in his own head he's thinking yeah this is going to make good TV brother and it really isn't it really isn't all he's got to say is damn you damn you yeah Giant comes off looking great that manic laughter it adds so much to him so after this, we get the uh, we get the highlights from War Games where the giant actually injures Hulk Hogan. Uh, I loved the uh, army paint for Team Hogan as well. Obviously, I knew Sting was going to have like his paint on his face and stuff like that, but I never in a million years would have even have thought of using khaki green and black on as face paint. And I really dug that the whole the whole team cohesively ad- adopted this khaki green and black face paint idea. See, I only saw Hogan in that, and I thought he actually looked legit. He actually looked like a, an action man or a G.I. Joe for the American listeners, because uh, that's the equivalent. You know, he he actually looked pretty cool in that in that attire. Yeah, yeah, it was good to see him out of the red and yellow, weren't it? Yeah, and I think that really lends a lot to when he joins the NWO and obviously he becomes black and white. Um I think a lot of it is just stale. So I, I, I said in the last podcast that everything that Hulk Hogan does is way past its sell-by date. And so just then doing something a little bit different, it is, it adds something to him. It adds a little bit. It's like he's actually trying where everything else he does, it looks like he's putting in next to no effort. The main event of Nitro is going to be flying Brian Pillman versus Ric Flair. This is the one that was from the promo earlier on. It starts really fast-paced. Ric Flair does a top rope move to the floor again, as he did the night before at Fall Brawl. Take a photo of these, Brian, because honestly, I don't know when you're going to see another one. (laughs) The fact that he doesn't do a top rope move into the ring, which is closer, but he'll do one to the outside, which is further away, and you've more chance of injuring yourself, it's just perplexing to me. And he actually does one into the ring as well, which um, Pillman does again, the reversal with a drop kick. Yeah, and yeah. It, right to the face. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, he puts a little bit too much salt and pepper on it. It might just be Ric Flair's selling of it, but oh, it looked nasty. I think there were a connection, to be honest. I, 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 I'm adamant there's a connection there. Flair must have been on the floor like, that son of a bitch. <laughs> I cannot put over that reversal enough. It is beautiful. I think he might have my favourite dropkick in wrestling now. I think it is up there, yeah, because it is... It's not squeaky clean. It's not squeaky clean and it's not perfected. It's violent, I think. As a reversal move, yes. Mm. It's definitely up there with Alex Wright's. Yeah. I can't decide between the two. They are both good for different reasons. I think aesthetically, Alex Wright's is really really good to look at whereas Pillman's is just violent I mean again you know you're talking it from offensive versus defensive Pillman's from my, from what we've seen he's using it as a defensive move which you just don't see and 
that ha- that adds a lot to it. Pillman pulls out all the cheap tricks when it comes to pinfalls and all the rest of it, and the commentators are putting that over as well. Obviously, Pillman's affiliation with Owen Anderson now, given what happened at Fall Brawl, they're trying to turn Pillman heel. I kind of felt like Pillman's, again, his facial expressions still need a lot of work, and his playing up to the crowd still needs a lot of work as well. At times, I still feel like he's not, I'm going to say selling, but I'm not entirely sure that that's the right word to use. Again, if we go back to Pillman in WWF, and you think about he just the crazed Brian Pillman sort of like, sort of thing, I don't see it in WCW. I don't see it at this moment in time. No, maybe there's nobody really directing him in that aspect. I mean, for, for all you can say about Vince McMahon, is that um, he probably does way too much hands-on work these days. But if you need to get somebody over as a heel, he'll make sure that they have all the nuances right. Some people it works for, some people it doesn't. But here, maybe that's what it is. Maybe Pillman's just been told, right, you're a heel now, do your job. And no one's actually telling him, right, this is what you've got to do. So working with Arn Anderson and with Ric Flair, that can only help him in the long run. It probably, it probably did, con- considering how hateable he was in WWE. I think you're right there. I think the probability is that once Nitro started, Bischoff just sort of went and said, "Right, we've got to put Pillman with somebody who's really experienced, who's really going to get a character out of this guy, and who better than Arn Anderson, really." Which means that you're essentially working with Ric Flair as well. Yeah. Flair goes over. Flair's chest skin, in particular, is just all beat up from all these chops. And at the end of it, Ric Flair grabs a microphone. And there's one little bit in this. And it's so it's so basic and it's so minuscule. But it's something that we just don't see anymore. Is that he, he sees a sign in the crowd... A sign that says, to be the man, you've got to beat the man. And he continues to acknowledge it while cutting the promo. He just says that he's going to kick Arn's ass either this week or the next week. And I just feel like wrestling can be so impersonal now. Without so There's a big lack, big lack of signs. I've heard a lot of people mentioning that over the past like couple of months. Signs seem to have fallen by the wayside when it comes to wrestling now. And I think it's just, I think it's A sad. lot of it is, I'm not going to say it's a sign of the times, because in all elite wrestling, there are quite a lot of signs. But we go back to Vince McMahon micromanaging, and you hear all these stories of fans having signs taken off them, and there are other stories saying that, there are, there are signs ready and waiting to be given to fans as they get there, and it's up to them to take them in or not. And it just seems to me that Vince McMahon is very worried, maybe too worried, of what fans might actually write on a sign. And so, like, he has bodyguards, security... So he has security ready and waiting to just go through, anybody that goes through the doors and saying, okay... This sign might be a little bit too risque for this product. We're going to have to take it off you. And it makes the fans not feel a part of the business anymore. 
I mean, I've always said that fans do try to be a part of the business that they're already a part on. You know, like, uh, if John Cena wins, we're going to riot or uh, hijack Chicago or, or hijack Raw, whatever it was fucking called. Uh, trying way too hard to be a part of it. And I think that is because they're not really a part of it anymore. They're just there. And that is so sad. We end Nitro with the guys at the commentary booth and Bobby the Brain keeps saying that there's something happening in the back and it kind of sounds like they're going to cut away and they're going to go back to the back and it just never happens. Nitro goes off the air. That was pretty frustrating. There seems to be a lack of direction there. Uh, it, it looks like Heenan's been told something in his ear to react to something and Bischoff and Mongo haven't been told the same thing. That's how it come, comes across. There was something that was clearly going for. Yeah. And it's just got lost. I was wondering if uh, Brain had gone into business for himself a little bit there and just said he was, he was doing his best to, to promote the product, um, but they were out of time anyway, so they wouldn't have been going to the back. So it, they were kind of dangling the carrot there a little bit, and I guess it did add to the mystique of live TV and that something could be kicking off now. Oh, no, we've got to cut away to whatever's on TNT after Nitro. So what are your thoughts on the entire Nitro? Um, it was a very mixed bag of the show. Um, we're only three episodes in, so there's no full TV issues, but it's not bad. But they do keep up with that rapid pace. It's very, very clear that they want a very, very snappy show. I think I said that on the last episode. Uh, I do appreciate that. Okay, so on to Nitro number four, which is uh, taking place on September 25th, 1995, and it's coming from Florence in South Carolina. The dark matches, as they start off, Shark defeated Mark Starr. The American Males defeated Harlem Heat, who came out with Sister Sherry, and they retained the WCW World Tag Team Championships. Johnny B. Bad defeated Diamond Dallas Page, who's the World Television Champion. But, because it was via DQ... DDP retains the World Television Championship. So it's not a bad start for a capacity crowd there. With the American Males, the tag team titles have been put on the line. Harlem Heat are there and the TV Championships have been put on the line as well. And that's before we've even started recording. Yeah, it is a shame that it isn't on the main show. But it is what it is. Yeah, strange, isn't it? Because when you're looking through the card for tonight, you look, you've got Kurosawa versus Craig Pittman. But then you've got... I mean, Johnny B. Bad versus Diamond Dallas Page, you'd rather see that, wouldn't you? Obviously, Harlem Heat versus the American Males, I'm not sure about that because obviously we had it last week. It would have been nice to actually see that on the main card as a follow-up to last week because there were confusion whether the match was actually legit. Well, we're going straight into Nitro here with Alex Wright versus Disco Inferno. Yes! Now, I believe that this is Disco Inferno's debut on Nitro as well. Yeah, it is. Alex Wright is coming off a reversed decision win over Sabu and currently is the most used talent on TV as well. I'm really happy about that. Yeah, that, I mean, that says a lot about what, they, what they're trying to achieve with Alex Wright, I think, that they really want to push him as a, as a brand spanking new WCW kind of star. They definitely see the potential in him. I, I was wondering what, you, uh, what your opinions are uh, on Disco Inferno as well. Well, I've never really seen him wrestle before. Um, the entrance, the Disco Fever entrance, 
I absolutely unironically love that theme. It, it's up there with the man called Sting, and it's just so cheesy, it's so good. The actual entrance, though, um, I don't know why I thought this. It probably is because I've been playing San Andreas recently, but there is a mission in that called Life's a Beach, and you have to go to a beach party, and well, obviously you play CJ, and CJ's dancing is very minimalistic, but so cartoony at the same time. And I just, I could only think of that mission. I could only think of uh, CJ's dancing. His dancing is, it leaves a lot to be desired. Yeah, I think I get the bits that you were uh, you referring to. Um, but in terms of in terms of disco and the music particularly, uh, I always dug the music because it, it was just a laugh. When it came to the character himself, I, I never had a problem with disco. And I remember somebody saying a few months ago on Twitter, who the hell even is Disco Inferno? Uh, and I think Chris Jericho, of all people, retweeted that tweet and said, Disco knows more about the business than a lot of people that I know. Something like that. And I was just like, hey, fair play, fair play. I think he's a very controversial figure in, in particular his opinions. I think he just likes to troll, for lack of a better word. Um, I don't think he believes half the shit that he says. He just likes to get a rise out of people. So I can understand, like, people not really favouring him. I mean, even I've had a couple of run-ins with him on Twitter, admittedly. But I just don't buy he's that much of a dick, really. Do you think you think he's still living a gimmick on Twitter? Pretty much, yeah. Right. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I tend to agree. I mean, I look at his tweets and they are very troll-like. He's definitely saying things that kind of get the spine up certain people. Are we saying that he's the Pierce Morgan of the wrestling business? I don't think he's that bad. No. Pierce, <laughs> Pierce Morgan is a professional contrarian. And... Yeah. Disco, he, he's nowhere near as bad as Pierce Morgan. But he, he does the exact same thing. He'll say one thing and he'll say another thing that completely contradicts what he said previously, maybe months before, years before, what have you. I think there's every possibility that Disco kind of learnt that from Vince Russo. I've, I've got a funny feeling that they're buddies. Yeah, they probably are. But, I mean, going back to 95, I mean, all the way through the WCW tenure, I, I, I like Disco. Um, I think he's a good build. Uh, he's a really, really smooth guy in the ring. His technique's really good. Uh, he uh, he could get instant heat as well, like you were saying about on Twitter. He, he he could just get instant heat, and I think all the way through, you know, all the six years he was in WCW, I think he was always a heel. I don't think that ever changed, and I'm sure he could have got like babyface reactions. From my recollection, I'm pretty sure he was permanently heel, and it's just funny, but co- not. I'm not. I'm not going to say cool. Cool's not the right word. He, he weren't cool. Kevin Nash was cool. He was the anti-cool. Yeah, he was the yeah yeah. I'd go with that. Comically, just comically good to watch. I mean, going back to his entrance, like saying that he was always a heel in WCW. I mean, you just look at that entrance and you think, what a dick. Yeah, that's my, that, that's all I can think. What a dick. He just he's so easy to hate just from the way he dances, his swagger. You know, you could tell immediately that his character is that he's an egotist. I mean, all heels pretty much are egotists, but, you know, he's got that down in spades just from his entrance. So if we're going to look at Alex Wright here, 
And we're going to look at the crowd reactions of Alex Wright here. He's not done anything and he's already over with the crowd. Yeah, they they really like him. Yeah, and even more so with the, with just his physical offense, with the, with with the moves that he's pulling out and all that, the crowd just really really get behind him. And uh, I dug this, I dug this quite a bit. It was good to see why uh, WCW want to push right and they want to get him over, and because I think he deserved it, his talent deserved it, his ability in the ring deserved it, and the fact that he could just generate such baby face reaction like without even really doing anything. You've got to start thinking, hey, we might be onto something here. It might just be like a sign of the times, as it were, that he just has that natural babyface look. And mm. usually back then, people just look at somebody like that and just look, look, just by the what they say, yeah, he's a good guy. He's one of those, you know, he just wants to kick ass and have fun while he's doing it. And yeah, he, he's relatable. In many aspects. I don't think it would work these days. I mean, companies, WWE in particular, TNA at times, Ring of Honor, they've all tried the exact same thing where they've just got this handsome, athletic guy, put him in the ring and just expect the fans to cheer him and it's gone the opposite way. I mean, even even Nick Aldis had it at, at, at some point where... You know, it, it, when he got into TNA, he was obviously a heel. But when when they pushed him as a face, the fan, you know, they just you just look at him and you think, yeah, he's a blue chipper. You know, he's got the look. He's a handsome son of a bitch. Mm. Yeah, in 1995, the fans probably would have just gotten behind him like that. But, you know, in 2010 or whenever it was, the fans just didn't buy it. You know, you can't just put people out there and expect fans just to like them just by the look alone. The move that stands out to me in this match is just a, it's a springboard drop kick, which is just fucking, it's just Alex Wright's drop kicks. I don't know how many times we're going to talk about Alex Wright's drop kicks on these podcasts and just say that we're always amazed by him. But yeah, I'm just going to say that I was amazed by it again. <laughs> yeah, it's the height on it. it. It just seems to float like a feather in the air. But the impact of it, it does look pretty brutal. But yeah, it is such a beautiful drop kick. There's no other way we can describe it. We're going to end up running out of descriptions for this. We're going to we're going to run out of adjectives at some at some point. Through all that, right wins with uh, a backslide, and the fans go absolutely berserk for it. I've never seen somebody go so berserk for a backslide since probably Sting beat Flair in 1990. We had backslide. I just. The push is working. What WCW doing with Alex Wright right now? And the fans are on board. Um, we can't get enough of it. And we're hoping for more right here on Nitrogen Cast because we're going to be covering it all. Oh, I can't wait. I um, I, I said it before. Big fan of this guy already. Seen two matches of him and I'm such a fan. He's just so good. Next up, we've got a Hogan promo. As much as I don't like Hogan, I kind of like this. His uh, ability to talk and his ability to sell the upcoming Hogan versus Giant for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship at Halloween Havoc 1995. Repeatedly calls uh, the Giant no good stinky Giant. No good stinky Giant. So again, we're going back to the, the child-friendly comic book character that Hulk Hogan is, slapping monster jokes on the side and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, the big stinky Giant. You're just dying for Hogan to just swear, aren't you, really? Just like, you no good son of a bitch. Yeah, pretty much. 
And they're billing this as a monster truck versus monster truck match. I think they call it machine versus machine. Yes, that's it. Yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. And I don't know if that's some sort of play on words because they're saying that Hogan's a machine and the giant is a machine. But after that, we get a, a match, another Macho Man Slim Jim commercial. I've noted down actually on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff that the Slim Jim money essentially paid for Randy Savage's contract. So WCW had, didn't have to pay him a dime. That is... It's a genius, genius endorsement. I mean, we all know of the money that WWE brought in because of that. Um, but to actually br- uh, bring it to live television as well, where people are probably going to be more engaged in live TV than taped, taped shows, pre-taped shows, like Raw were doing at the time. Um, yeah, that is just such great marketing. It is, yeah. Uh, the fact that you can get somebody like Randy Savage for free, after all the you know billionaire Ted and using his checkbook and all that sort of stuff, ATM Eric, they called him and everything like that, one of his biggest defences is that he managed to get the Macho Man for free, essentially, because the Slim Jim money paid for his contract, but Macho brought Slim Jim with him. So it is, like you said, it's just great marketing. It's great business strategy. Who was it that actually negotiated that deal was it eric bischoff himself i don't know that actually um i would be surprised if it was eric bischoff but you never know well whoever it was genius absolutely genius very much and, and we're still seeing savage just isn't a commentator vince thought your best days are behind you get behind the table and just commentate it's absolutely not the case as far as i can can see here in the promos and in the matches the guy's just as intense as ever. Yeah, and to be honest with you, we can enjoy a Macho Man promo, but that voice, just to hear it on commentary, it's absolutely grating. Yeah, I was... Um, the, it was the old the, the old WWF commentator. It weren't Gorilla Monsoon. Are you on about Jesse Ventura? Jesse Ventura. So when Jesse Ventura was doing the commentary as well, I was like, I can't really be putting up with this. I don't like Vince on commentary anyway, but then you've got Jesse Ventura, and it was just like, I just want to mute this. Well, going back to what you're saying, like Vince isn't really a good commentator himself. If you had a JR next to uh, Randy Savage, it probably would have worked a little bit better. Yeah. But, you know, Vince was never a good commentator. He was very over the top. What a manoeuvre! Big back body drop! You know, was was never good at it. You know, um, he also had the likes of Jerry Waller around at the time. And Jerry Waller is a character. You know, you're having two characters next to each other. Two big gimmicks. It's, yeah, it, it just doesn't work. But from my experience of just listening to Savage on commentary... You know, taking away Vince, taking away Jerry Wall, if you just had him, just had his audio on its own, I, yeah, I don't think I could hack it. No, me neither. And again, I, I know I'm a little bit biased when it comes to the WCW commentary team, but I do feel like, again, Tony Schiavone kind of had that voice for commentary. Um, just, you know, maybe only a couple of years before that, Jim Ross was on commentary, and I do like Jim when it comes to um, commentating as well. Earlier, um, We get a few highlights from last week, and then uh, we get a, a promo from Randy Savage with Lex Luger running in, and here we go again with this programme. 
they're both kitted out to wrestle, which makes it look like they, they, they might be fighting one-on-one tonight. Lex says that he's disrespecting him, even though, you know, Sting has got mutual respect with him and Hogan has mutual respect with him, but Macho just doesn't, and Macho doesn't trust him. So they put up the number one contendership on next week's Nitro in a match between Lex and the Macho man. And if Lex loses, he's out of WCW. So four weeks into his contract, it could be shown the door. That would be interesting to see. That would have been fucking hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Especially after how he got into WCW. We talked about how Eric Bischoff ended up with egg on his face there on the last podcast. But yeah, that would have been very interesting. Yeah. What I did like was Savage's closing line saying, Oh, I'm shaking in my boots. <laughs> the way he did that, I, I just laughed at that. Absolutely brilliant. I fucking love Macho Man. So Absolutely good. Love him. So good. good. So intense. It, and I think Lex did better as well with this promo. It seems like the last promo was pretty good, but this one was much better. I think he only tripped over himself once. Um, yeah, he didn't really have a lot to say. Yeah, kind of leave it. Just leave it to Macho, really. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised he didn't cock up the uh, the mutual respect thing. To be honest, after that we get into uh, we get into some fighting. We've got uh, Kurosawa and the sergeant Craig Pittman. Now these two, I I know absolutely nothing about. It it didn't go down too well. It was an awful match. Pittman's kind of he's just your big brawler type play, player, whereas Kurosawa's obviously. More of a technical wrestler, but also a bit of a high flyer. So you've got a clash of a clash of ring styles. I know it was mentioned in commentary that Kurosawa did break Road Warrior Hawk's arm, which for some reason in my head that seems to ring a bell around this time. I'm pretty sure that Hawk did actually break his arm. That might be legitimate. Pittman's back suplexed onto an exposed floor, which is is never 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 good. I can't. I wouldn't even want to take that to be honest <laughs> no I cringed when that happened yeah Pittman Pittman does this running head bash thing that looks a bit weird uh, and Kurosawa concentrates on the arm which is storytelling uh, and after a couple of reversals it's mentioned again that the over the top rope thing now this is this is confusing because this happened at uh, Fall Brawl as well in the Brian Pillman Johnny B. Bad match I think Johnny B. Bad went over the top rope, which normally in WCW was a, disc- a disqualification. And again, the commentary have mentioned in this match that as someone's gone over the top rope, it's meant to be a disqualification, but it looks like the rules are being relaxed. Yeah, it is a bit weird that. I mean, was it Bill Watts that brought that rule in? It could be. Uh, I, I wouldn't. I, I'm not sure to be honest. It was. It was definitely one of those old school names. Um, because I remember um, reading up not too long ago. It was actually after watching Brian Pillman versus at Jushin Thunder Liger on the first night show. Apparently, they'd had a match in 1992. I think it was for the WCW Light Heavyweight Championship. Wow. And yeah, I didn't even know that thing, that title existed. I could swear it was Bill Watts when he came in. They, they basically made top rope moves illegal. They made going outside illegal. So they made that belt pointless. Yeah. And the belt ended up just being, uh, being retired. I mean, I mean, it could be him. You could be right. Uh, but but off the top of my head, I'm not entirely sure. And. It's it's just a bizarre rule to have, in my honest opinion. 
yeah, it's it's very NWA. Uh, I think NWA had it at one point, or maybe just one of those territories uh, use those rules. And I suppose if done right, it can work. But obviously, we're talking about the eighties here, uh, nineteen ninety-five, when you've got you've got the likes of Johnny B. Bad, Brian Pillman, Jushin Thunder Liger, uh, Alex Wright. I don't know how I didn't mention him. Uh, all these high-flying uh, wrestlers. You do need to utilize the outside. Yeah, they need the freedom, don't they? Yes. Well, as as the commentary team is saying that DQs are, are being more and more relaxed. Obviously, that is Bischoff whispering in the ear and and letting people know that it's a new day, a new new era in WCW, and that these things will be allowed. Kurosawa does go out to the outside in the end. Uh, Kurosawa in the end does get the win with a bridging belly to back suplex, and then we go to an in ring interview with. Brian Pillman and Arn Anderson, which I thought, as I was saying earlier on about Pillman not having this energy and these facial expressions, now, all of a sudden, just a week later, it's completely different. Shades of Louis Cannon. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Uh, I really enjoyed it, I, I, and I thought his character development, literally in seven days, is just almost completely different from who he was last week yeah it, it seems between last week and this week maybe Arn or Rick Flair has gotten into his ear and said look that match lacks a little bit of heel nuances um, you need you, you if you're a heel you need to be a little bit more a little bit more vicious yeah yeah I think that's right I think that's right and I think it just I think it just tells, slowly but surely, obviously it doesn't happen overnight, but it, it certainly tells that he's a quick learner and that he he's certainly onto something with this promo. There's a quick video package which is regarding Savage versus the Taskmaster, and uh, we go straight into the match, and the Taskmaster runs away and Macho chases with Zodiac cheap-shotting Macho, giving Taskmaster the advantage early on, so it's nice and heelish and... We're sick of seeing the Dungeon of Doom, but when it comes to these sorts of cheap tactics, there's no better at getting heel heat in the company at this moment in time, I don't think. Nah, I have no real comment. All I can just say is I appreciate the fact that you're just running right through this match. Yeah, well, I'm you've just, got... I'm just so sick of the Dungeon <laughs> yeah. of Doom. I mean, I love the fact that it's macho, but yeah, it's just basically like, yeah. Uh, feeds of a very small comeback are cut off. Being on the outside changes the tide and macho backdrops Taskmaster. Uh, back in the ring, Macho tries to throw Taskmaster back out. Zodiac saves him. Enters the ring. Macho fights both uh, and even fights with the referee, which gets him a disqualification, which I loved as well. I mean, he's clearly babyface, but he can just wrestle a referee and, and people just love it. The elbow from the top goes on to Zodiac, even though the Taskmaster was lying on top of him. Uh, the Taskmaster has, has jumped out of the way, so the Zodiac takes the full brunt of the Macho elbow. And that's, this is the point where the giant comes down and choke slams Macho Man. Mark Starr comes out to try and help, and he gets a choke slam for his efforts. Alex Wright comes out next, and he tries a top rope axe handle, but again, just gets a bear hug from the giant, and he's down and out for the count. And that's when Lex Luger is going to come out. But Lex Luger will stand over the Macho Man, which just looks uh, looks like basically he's turned on him because there's no other way. Lex. They, they tried to tease on commentary that Lex is protecting Macho Man here, but he really isn't. He's standing over him like, I'm the victor and you're the sucker, essentially. Yeah, he blatantly teases an attack. Yeah. 
but it, it doesn't get to that point because the giant attacks him. It's it's kind of teased that the giant's kind of snapped a little bit, uh, and that the taskmaster's kind of lost control of the giant. The taskmaster quickly gets control back after the giant slams Lex to the floor. They put the giant over again as a monster who's just uncontrollable, but the taskmaster just does lead him out of the ring, and straight from the advertisement break we go into the main event which is Meng versus Lex Luger and Me- Lex Luger is in absolutely no <laughs> in no shape to wrestle here whatsoever so this should be quite one sided and this is also the first time that we'll see Meng on WCW Nitro and Meng I've heard a lot of stories about who's just supposed to be a really 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 cool guy horror stories are that he is just the hardest man in wrestling heard, yeah so many stories uh Things like uh, breaking people's teeth out with his fingers and, like, I just wouldn't want to piss him off. Um, if if Jake the Snake Roberts, who is a legitimately a tough guy, uh, even if he says, like, you know, if I was in a tank and he had a gun, I'd get out, I'd get out the tank, take the gun off him and shoot myself because I don't want to miss him and piss him off. If, if Jake <laughs> Roberts can say that, I... I I can buy that he is a very, very scary guy. There's a there's a photo on the internet somewhere where Kevin Nash is sat on Meng's lap, and I mean you can see the nervousness in Kevin Nash's face. <laughs> it's just hilarious. Just if pictures could talk, man. But all the way through this match, it's Meng on top. Lex gets a couple of feeds where he teases the comeback, but it's always cut off by Meng. The commentators are asking where the Taskmaster is because Meng very rarely comes out to the ring without the Taskmaster, but obviously he's at the back trying to control the giant from from going absolutely berserker, berserker. The sleepers applied on the ground uh, and Luger's allowed to get a little bit of a respite and a bit of a momentum again, but Meng cuts him off again. Meng goes high risk. Luger kind of moves, and this is just this. Sometimes Luger just he'll do these things, and it just makes me annoyed because he's a professional. He's he's been on the top of the you know the wrestling mountain for a couple of years at least, and he just makes really basic elementary mistakes. Yeah, it looked like he was going into a cutter, like an RKO or a diamond cutter type move. Yeah, and he just whiffs it. He doesn't even. I think he gets just a slightest touch on Meng. And that's about it. So they, they they try to put over that he's thrown his face into the mat, and obviously Lex goes down and sells it as well, probably because he's feeling a little bit stupid. Uh, off to the corner, Lex gets a boot up and pushes him off. Lex goes off on Meng a little bit too much, uh, which allows the referee to be distracted, and Meng pulls out a foreign object, which is a spike. And Meng, on the main event of WCW Nitro number four, will get the win over Lex Luger. Yeah, so that's uh, that's natural number four. Uh, again, like you said earlier, the um, the dark match or the undercard, if you'd like to call it that, much much more entertaining, if you like, than certainly that main event. Uh, really good from Meng's point of view. I mean, yeah, it, I, I like seeing Meng wrestle because he's a very barbaric character and a, a guy that has a very unique style in what he does. But Lex just lets the side down again, even though he had a good promo earlier on. He lets the side down with the match, with just making you know elementary mistakes. Savage being paired up with the Taskmaster in a in a match is just 
rubbish, really. And I think you're just spending Savage's ability. You're just wasting it on a guy like the Taskmaster. But it continues the story going. It's hard. It's apart from Alex Wright versus Disco Inferno. What did you think of Nitro number four, Brian? Yeah, it wasn't a good show. Um, I did like the psychology in the final match. Um, Meng did look like an absolute monster, but it wasn't an entertaining contest. Um, yeah, the, the other matches were passable. Alex Wright versus Disco Inferno. It wasn't the best match. It wasn't brilliant. It were a decent bout. Um, I'd like to see a little bit more time in those kind of matches. But yeah, overall, it wasn't a good show. No, no, not at all. So that is it from Nitro number four. And how do you think overall these these last two, in terms of the fallout from Fall Brawl, the storylines are continuing. Macho doesn't like Lex. Lex doesn't like Macho. Hulk Hogan's off TV because he only works eight days a year. So what do you think? How do you think things are going in WCW so far, Brian? Uh, it's not the best. Um, I just, I'm just praying for the Dungeon of Doom shit to end. Uh, I'm not entertained by it. The heel psychology is great and all, but yeah, I just do not like the group. I don't like most of the wrestlers. Uh, Meng and the Giant, they're fine on their own. The rest, not so much. I'm more intrigued in the the story between Arn Anderson and Rip Flair than anything. I'm really, really invested in that uh, because all... The only thing I know about Ric Flair and Arn Anderson is that they were the be- the best of friends. They were brothers. Uh, they are both... Their, their careers speak for themselves. They're both brilliant wrestlers. Um, both absolute stars. So yeah, I'm, I'm adding Brian Pillman into that as well. What I can say is that in Nitro number 5, on the next episode of Nitrogen Cast, we will be covering uh, that Lex Luger versus Macho Man match for the number one contendership of the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. Lex has to leave WCW if he loses, whilst Match will become the number one contender to Hulk Hogan's title. The other way around, Lex just maintains that he's the number one contender and will continue to get his title match against Hulk Hogan somewhere down the line because don't forget at Halloween Havoc 1995 which is the next pay-per-view Hulk Hogan's already scheduled to face the Giant for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship yes this is WCW four weeks in already things are getting confusing other matches that will be on the next Nitro include the one that we were talking about earlier Brian which is Eddie Guerrero versus Dean Malenko oh I cannot wait for that and in the main event from that, there will be Ric Flair versus Arn Anderson. And that is all to come on the next episode of Nitrogen Cast. You can catch us on all the major podcast servers, Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, and we're on Google Podcasts as well. We'd love to hear your feedback and suggestions at Nitrogen Cast on Twitter, Reddit, and Instagram. And of course, you can always give us a like on Facebook. <laughs>